Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment, and right now I'm calling in from this year's edition of one of the major events of the Fall Fest calendar, the Toronto International Film Festival. For the next few days, I'll be rallying some of the best critics in town to talk about all the titles that are premiering here, so you know the drill. Follow along on the Film Comment podcast and also keep your eye on the Film Comment letter for dispatches, interviews and more from Toronto. It's another day at the Toronto International Film Festival and that means there's another Film Comment podcast. <laughs> Uh, this is Devika Girish. I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. As you know, I've been here on the ground in Toronto rallying some of the best critics out here uh, to talk about each day's premieres. And today I have with me uh, two wonderful critics, one of whom has been on the podcast once before. Uh, Lovia, you want to introduce yourself? Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me back again. I'm excited to be here and talk about... An interesting tiff. <laughs> <laughs> we will get into the contours of what we mean by interesting. But Lovia, do you want to say a little about what you do? And oh, yes. What you- uh, I'm Lovia Jachet, and I am uh, an arts and culture critic at The Hollywood Reporter. Wonderful. And I know you're like really burning the midnight oil here, filing reviews. And I'm, I don't envy trade critics or at festivals, you know, it's like... <laughs> Just seems horrible. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, but thank you for your service. Character building. I'm building character. Thank you. And then we have a a debutant to the Film Comment podcast. Alex, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes. Uh, a thrill to be here. I'm Alex Berish. I'm a culture editor and sometimes writer for The New Yorker. Wonderful. And what are you doing here? Like, what's your kind of mandate at TIFF? Mostly scouting, consuming as much as humanly possible, and then reporting back on what's interesting, and then maybe filing a piece or two. So, uh, much more luxurious than Lovia's situation, I would say. But And the trenches. (laughs) And we were just discussing when we were trying to figure out what to talk about that we've unfortunately had a kind of underwhelming few days here but both Alex and I saw one of the kind of buzzier titles at this year's TIFF today which is Dream Scenario by Christopher Borgley who had a film I think last year called Sick of Myself right? Oh yes that's right. Yeah and uh, so Dream Scenario I have to say I didn't really know about this until yesterday and then it turned out like everyone was waking up at 7 a.m to line up for this film. It stars Nicolas Cage as a kind of very flubby, losery uh, professor and academic and evolutionary biologist who starts appearing in the dreams of other people, starting with his like daughter and colleagues and then just like people all over. And it's this absurdist kind of satire that tracks what that kind of fame uh, and the virality associated with that in today's culture, and then also 
the kind of repercussions of fame, like mm. cancel culture and uh, surveillance and paparazzi and all of that, how they basically really blow up, actually, this very average man's life. Mm-hmm. Um, very kooky scenario, one that immediately, you know, I was intrigued by. I love I love this kind of, like, the idea of mass dreams, hive mm-hmm. mind, and this seemed like a, an interesting approach to it. But Alex, what, what was your experience of the film? Yeah, I mean, I was intrigued by this one early when I was sort of putting together my uh, TIFF calendar because I saw that it was produced by Ari Aster, whom uh, I am very interested by. And the premise is interesting. Nick Cage is obviously in this kind of strange meta moment in his own career, seems to Can be I reckoning with his persona. Yeah, tell Nick me. Nick Cage, a national treasure. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, need, I wanted to drop I'm, uh, that. I'm leaving the podcast, but <laughs> it was so nice to come here for these five minutes. Um, <laughs> no, you're, you're trapped now. You have I, to laugh at all my jokes now. now and so. I do have to <laughs> articulate an opinion. Yeah. No, I mean, I truly sprinted from a 3 p.m. screening of Dream Scenario to this recording. <laughs> so I'm like blinking in the daylight, right. still getting to grips with my feelings about it. But I do, I mean, I I found it to be a very interesting premise. I liked a lot of things about the execution. I think as a meditation on fame and the kind of distorting power that has, it is really interesting and, and funny and goes to some places. Uh, I felt that all of the cancel culture commentary did not land for me and felt kind of tacked on and arbitrary and it's just not actually a one-to-one for what that would be. So I have mixed feelings, I would say. I think the performances are great. I think it has its moments and it's, uh, you know, provocative and interesting, but I'm unsettled as to my, my ultimate verdict and I wonder if you've had more time to crystallize. Yeah, a few more hours than you, but I, I more or less agree with you I think the first half of the film really had me yes and at that time I was thinking man I'm glad I dragged my ass out of bed to (laughs) line up for this at an ungodly you know early hour and it was the first half was the honestly the most fun I think I've had at a screening here this Mm -hmm. time you know like the audience was really just vibing with the film laughing uh, at the right places and I know we'll get to American fiction a little later um which we talked about a little bit on the podcast yesterday. And that was another like very crowd-pleasing viewing experience, but one that was pretty tame ultimately for me. And here I was getting more bite out of it mm-hmm. in that first hour. And Nicolas Cage is, I think, quite fantastic as a yeah. performer in this. Um, just that he embodies that kind of sad sack professor, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, so well. And, you know, sometimes I really have a problem with, Hollywood actors who put on this like wig and like a prosthetic belly and you know overdo that kind of persona and I think he just plays it so well so straight but and and I should say the first half hour is when people start realizing people start pointing out that they're all dreaming about him and there's like a motif to the dreams which is that he is like this very passive bystander while people experience like horrors you know right, yes. <laughs> horrible things happen to them and yeah he's a professor and he has these insecurities about his academic career all of those are brought into play in that first half and it raises this really interesting question of how responsible is he for the things he does in other people's dreams mm-hmm. and there's 
it's a very promising interlude where he has a meeting with some with like an influencer agency or marketing company. Right. It's sort of a startup that's trying to capitalize on his sudden ubiquity. Right. In the sense of I mean, they they have this whole pitch for him where they're saying you know, Sprite are really interested in collaborating with you. You know, we're going to take photos of you with a bottle of Sprite. And then that will sort of implant this desire. It's like a Pavlovian thing such that people will want to drink Sprite because they'll associate it with you and you are already in their subconscious. And this is the sort of brave new world of uh, marketing. Uh, And it is a very funny sequence. I mean, they they have the kind of buzzwords that an agency like that would use down uh, and the sort of eccentric startup founder and all of these. Played by Michael Sarah, who's so great. So all of that really had me, but I it's like, yeah, when it starts going into the cancel culture stuff, it just loses steam and kind of fizzles out. Mm -hmm. But it's also, you know, at that point, I was wondering, okay, but what is it trying to say? Right. You know, it's. It's funny, it's weird, but it feels like it's building to some kind of meditation about like, I mean, and, and I'm not saying every movie has to have some deep reading, uh, you know, of, of social life, but... This one clearly wanted to. Exactly. It, it thought it had something, you know, I mean, <laughs> and you see, and we should actually specify what happens is that he goes from being this passive presence in people's dreams to being a violent presence or a sexual presence and it becomes very disturbing to people, so they start to hold him responsible for his conduct in their dreams. Uh, and he's sort of alienated and cast out of society, and he can't go to his daughter's school recital and all of these things. Right. And so it goes from this, you know, it, he, he goes from being a, a celebrity and a meme to a pariah. And um, someone people are, like, triggered by because they have these subconscious associations. Right. And at that point, it's it's sort of like, the what it's touching upon it's not just cancel culture it's the idea that it's like ideas of harm and trauma right mm-hmm. which are like it's a culture wars zone yes. uh but it's also something quite real and mm-hmm. this is just so ludicrous that the premise is so ludicrous and to try to talk about those themes through this premise at some point and and also in a pretty superficial way i mean mm-hmm. there's this whole scene where there's a bunch of high school kids and he, I don't want to spoil it too much, but basically, you know, it's, um, it felt like a little bit of a joke on like the snowflake kids of this generation. And that didn't seem very well thought out. It, it really undercut the satirical aspect of the film, which Mm -hmm. was working so well in the first half when it was about celebrity and it was about what fame can do to a man, right? It's like, it was about what that, level of attention and adoration did to him. Exactly. And I think that's the thing that works about the film is the sort of psychological portrait and the way that it changes his sense of himself and the way he moves through the world. But when it's trying to do this societal level, uh, yeah, reckoning with cancel culture and this notion of imagined crimes for which someone is held responsible, it just falls apart because that's not how that operates in any sense. Um, and, you know, there are these lines where people are like, respect our boundaries, and, you know, uh, we, we have this trauma. And you can tell the, the snideness of it uh, is kind of radiating off the screen, and I, I, was, I found that uh, yeah. less effective. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I just, I did have a good time with Nick Cage for yeah. the entire, you know, the entirety of the film, so mm-hmm. I, will, I will give it that. Um, but... You know, I do think that American fiction is actually sort of 
a companion piece to this? It's, Alex, you have seen it, right? Yes. Okay, yeah. so and, all and three it, of us have seen it. It is an interesting intertext because I will say I was nervous in the first five minutes of American Fiction when it opens with this scene of Monk, the, the professor that we're following. Again, a lot of uh, academics this yeah. festival. <laughs> um, and he is sort of holding forth uh, in front of his students and he has the N-word behind him on the whiteboard. And a white student is like, I find this triggering. Which is <laughs> and, so uh, simplistic, it's, it's right? Like, it, is this a conversation that's happening in classrooms today? I kind of doubt it, but maybe somewhere. Um, no, but Rovia, it's, what, it's, you, <laughs> what did you think of the whole? <laughs> oh, I, I thought it was funny because it's a Flannery O'Connor short story. And <laughs> so I kind of like that aspect, the bit of it. But I, the beginning did make me nervous. Um... Something that you said, Devika, earlier mm. about bite and crowd pleasing, I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of the festival thematically. Mm. It feels like um, I've seen a lot of things that sort of reach for a barbed conclusion and then miss it mm -hmm. kind mm. of in favor of something else. And I don't think that that's something else I'm not putting, um, I'm not moralizing that something else is good or bad, but it definitely changes the trajectory of the film. And I felt that with American fiction, which I've been thinking about for a couple of days because I could sense that there was an imbalance between the satirical edginess of this man, of Monk trying to play the publishing system and this more dramatic uh, family story um, where he's coming to terms with um, his own rage and his relationship to his um, mother and his father who mm. um, is dead and his relationship with uh, this new woman who's played by Erica Alexander. And so it's, it's, um, it felt a bit uneven to me in that way. Yeah. Like I laughed a lot, but I also, I wasn't sure if the balance was quite right, but I'm, I'm happy to be, you know, fought on that. No, I, I mean, I think it's pretty much what we said when we discussed the film on yesterday's podcast. But, you know, I, I, I am interested in talking about it in conversation a little bit with Dream Scenario because, you know, it's the opening scene that you just described, Alex. It's so funny. When I was in college, there was a professor. She was a, a white Jewish professor, not, not a black professor. But she was reading Fanon. And she said the N-word. Like, she was reading and translating. So she's, like, quoting Fanon, and she said the N-word. And a, and black students, actually, you know, felt really offended by that. And that, you know, so I was watching this scene, and it turned into this town hall when I was an undergraduate. There was a town hall. It led to a reckoning about racism in the department. And I remember thinking... And, it, you know, there were all these divisive opinions. Like, she was quoting Fanon. Like, what do you expect? She's like... I won't name her, but she's like a big someone who's done a lot of like pro-Palestinian activism, all of that. But to me, what I remember was it's clearly not about the quote. Like this touched a nerve because there are students in this classroom who feel extremely neglected and, you know, and ha experience racism and this is a very white department and there is a level of discomfort they're facing with this discourse because it's representing something else. And what I found lacking in American fiction and maybe I think maybe in dreams, dream scenario as well is that it is easy to parody these sorts of instances, but it is harder to like get at what 
the nerve they're actually touching upon without mm. talking in broad terms, right? So like, yes, the black and white view of it is on the one hand, ah, oh, this is so silly. How could someone make such a big deal out of this? The other side is, oh, like this professor should have never said something like this. Like students are sensitive, blah, blah, blah. But there's actually something trickier here, not completely like you can't, that can't be reduced to a pat joke, which is what are the kind of power dynamics that already exist in these spaces and how these kinds of incidents actually become ways in which students learn how to articulate a much deeper discontent contentment, right? And I just like the way that opening scene was staged with it being this white student and then also the later in American fiction, the conversations that happen about the topic of pandering and writing for the market. I felt like so much of that just again, like circled around this central thing, you know, why do certain things become culturally so sensitive? There's a lot going on there. And it's the same with dream scenario where mm -hmm. it's not so simple as people piling on someone just because they, I mean, all sorts of things happen in the world. There are ways in which cancel culture is like weaponized, you know, in, in sometimes in, in like carceral ways, for example. But mm -hmm. There is, it kind of misses the point of about why certain things become so troubling, things that can seem really small in the big picture, even absurd, that there is something like a cultural, something that is a return of the repressed type of thing happening almost, you know? And I'm not saying these films have to be like discourses on that. They're supposed to be comedies. But there's a way to get get at those things in a, in a like pricklier way. Like, uh, you know, there there's... TV shows that have done that in much more interesting ways recently. You know, you have like shows like Atlanta or I May Destroy You mm -hmm. and that um, that just get at those those things in a much more complex way. So I just wanted to point that out as as something that left me wanting in both those films. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking on that. I'm chewing on it. <laughs> no, it was it was I thought that was really cogent and I and I hadn't thought about the opening scene in that. In I that hadn't either until I, you described yeah. it and I was like that I didn't even think that much about that but that yeah. that just reminded me of this incident that happened when I was younger mm. um yeah I thought of the opening scene as I guess I didn't really think about it because I sort of was like oh maybe this is just the way that the director is trying to bring the the text which you know was published in 2001 I think into the contemporary mm. um and because I guess it didn't totally work for me I mean I was like haha Flannery O'Connor um <laughs> I <laughs> I I kind of just, I, yeah, I left it, I left it as is, but, um, I now I'm probably going to be thinking on what you just said for, for a little bit. I do think it finds its footing after those opening minutes and, and becomes a little bit, uh, finer grained in its analysis and its understanding of these issues. I mean, it's trying a bit to, uh, have its cake and eat it too, but I did feel that it was, uh, it was it was more of a character establishing moment than anything else, I yeah. think. And and once we're kind of up and running, it does become a different. Of film. course, and it it doesn't even really paint him in a favorable light. Like right. that scene, I mean, right. he's actually kind yeah. of he goes really overboard. Um, yeah, and yeah. I don't, I don't know if he's meant to be like this person that that is favorable or unfavorable. So that mm -hmm. was I thought that was efficient in that way. Mm -hmm. I also think that you know Erasure is. A really, a really challenging book to adapt, and so I have you I read it. I started reading it actually, okay. and I was like, "Oh, I don't know." Before I, I started reading it, before I 
saw the film and yeah. I got increasingly worried because I was like, oh, how are you going to adapt this novel that is um, first person journal entries mm. with bits of asides and footnotes and, um, you know, monks musings um, and now I need to finish it so I won't speak. Yeah. <laughs> I won't speak on what I don't know. <laughs> okay, because we don't do that. But... But that's, I, a, that's a, found, a foundational principle of this podcast. <laughs> Very wise. We yes. don't speak on what we don't know. Yeah, shocking number of people don't don't adhere yeah. to that. But um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess I also want to just give kudos to to trying to make um, an essentially really difficult text one's own. Mm-hmm. You know, um, not sorry, not to sound like a for effort type of person. <laughs> But I, I do, yeah. I think because I started reading it and it was fresh in my mind, I was like, oh, wow, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. how will this work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is something you and I were talking about after we we watched, yeah. um, was how good he is at dramatizing the act of writing, yeah. which is normally so boring on screen. <laughs> uh, and I actually did, you know, the, the scenes where the characters, because he, uh, we should maybe set up the premise a bit more of the film, but yeah. essentially... Uh, he is a professor who's tried and failed to sell the book he actually wants to write because the sort of publishing world deems it insufficiently black. And in order to prove a point and possibly to make some money, he decides that he's going to give the market exactly what it wants and write the sort of more condescending text. Uh, And so there's a scene where he's ginning up this novel and yeah, the characters so <laughs> appear in his office and they're playing out this drama themselves. And uh, I found that to be very... And talking to him yeah. yes. while they're... So it's like really, the, like you say, it is truly the process of like being in conversation with characters while you write them. Uh, yeah. And it, I laughed out loud. Yeah, I think, I, think that, I think that Core Jefferson is really good at reflecting and representing writing both like the novelist and the page and also the screenwriter. Mm-hmm. And I won't say more about that because that's towards the end um but that that felt like a real strength of the film to me and just you know to a quick aside but in terms of i'm excited this fall to think about like black writers at work because origins is also Mm -hmm. um the ava duvernay film is also an adaptation um of a tome (laughs) yeah um and in that film duvernay renders the chooses to sort of render the thesis of Cass um and anchor it in a love in a love story essentially uh-huh. um and um as well as like make Isabel Wilkerson the main character and make it about the process of of coming up with this kind of of theory and framework mm. um so when I was watching American Fiction I was also thinking about Cass and I was like oh like I love to see this kind of um yeah, representation of writers, of black writers trying to work through um, their artistic practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, another film that I wanted to, you know, hear about, mainly because I think it represents a kind of trend at this year's festival, uh, the trend being actors turned directors, uh, <laughs> um, yes. is Anna Kendrick's Woman of the Hour. And so one of the other films, the actor turned director films is Pool Man, <laughs> directed by Chris Pine. Many questions about One of this the one. only two films at the Toronto International Film Festival that is playing in 35 millimeters. Wow. That is being projected in 35. Oh, wow. As God intended. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. God being Chris Pine. Um, but you've both seen Woman of the Hour. How did, how is is Anna Kendrick the new auteur on the block? 
Uh, I would say no. No, no I, I wouldn't. <laughs> that I was wouldn't, very quick. Yeah, I wouldn't say that for me personally. Yeah. You know, others are free <laughs> to disagree. And, and maybe another, they will. Yeah. <laughs> another foundational principle of the podcast, others <laughs> are free to disagree. <laughs> I love to lay the ground rules. No, um, you know, I, I was making a joke. I was joking with uh, Alex earlier that I, f- I feel like I've been on the Anna Kendrick beat because I also <laughs> what is that beat? <laughs> yeah, like, say more. She's a scholar. I'm a scholar. No, yeah. I, I the beat is I'm that sorry. I am I am a young person on on the critics team and I get <laughs> Anna Kendrick's things. Um, I don't know if that's true, but uh, last year at TIFF I reviewed and also saw Alice Darling, which she was which she starred in. Um, and it was a sort of portrait of this woman who's in an abusive relationship. And it was this very unnerving, um, I thought, like her performance was incredibly unnerving of someone who gets, um, who you see slowly uh, be transformed by her unspoken traumas. And then this year we have her both in front of the screen and behind the camera um, telling another story of abuse right Mm -hmm. and I so for me it's interesting to see her work through this really specific theme um I thought that can you you summarize the film a little bit like oh yeah yeah. woman of the the hour (laughs) what is it about where to begin where to begin no it I mean essentially it's it's based on um this serial killer, Rodney, who went on this game show in the 70s? Yes. We jump around a lot in time. There's a lot of time jumps, so I can't, right. (laughs) Who went on this game show um, while he was in the midst of his killing spree. uh, And this woman, Cheryl, who was on the game show, he wins and they go on a date and she um, basically, like, in real life, else in real mm. life, she doesn't. They don't end up together because she was like, "I find this guy creepy." But the essential, I think, what Anna Kendrick was trying to do with this film is to tell the story of um, the survivors and oh. to tell the story of the serial killer, um, but from the perspective of the woman um, that he harmed. Whether or not that works is, and in real life, he did meet that woman on a game show. Yes, that's the real, yeah. And so instead of making it like a true crime, a classic true crime in which we would be in the perspective of this serial killer, I see, and um, try to understand his motives and try to understand his patterns, we are just experiencing him through these women and also multiple time jumps and perspective jumps, which I don't think quite works. Um, although there are some strengths to the film. Like I, when I left, I was texting Alex and I was like, I feel very unnerved by this. Yeah. Um, I am afraid, but I don't know if, I think it's good at evoking a feeling. Mm. I don't know if it's so good at telling the story. I see. Yeah. I mean, there are these visceral moments, absolutely, where you do feel it. You know, the moment after the game show when she's walking through the parking lot we talked about and he's sort of a few paces behind and there's nobody else around and there is just this genuine dread that that you do feel watching. But I think, sort of as you're saying, Lovia, the effort to... Uh, tell this story through so many different lenses has the effect of 
everyone being a cipher. Yeah. You know, we never really come to understand the killer. We also don't come to understand the women. Yeah. I mean, so wait, w- sorry, no, I don't. Please. I know nothing about this film. So one of the women he met on a game show, and then mm-hmm. others are like others are just sort of random women that he encounters okay. at various places in. Yeah. But the anchor point of the film is the woman he met on the game show, right. who is played yes. by who is played by Anakin. Okay, yes. okay, yeah. But then there's also you know a. A girl who ran away from home. Yes, who so I think she, in the credits is Runaway Girl. Yeah, she does so not even have a name. I don't know if she has a name in the film. <laughs> uh, we could be wrong. Someone fact checked that. No, uh, she but, she fully okay. does not have a name because there's a sort of end credits thing right. where they talk about what happened in real life and she's just called the runaway. runaway like, yeah, yeah. So, you know, as an ostensible effort to grant these women... Uh, I hope I'm never serial killed. But <laughs> if that does happen to me, I do hope that I'm not credited as runaway girl in the movie version. That's all I, I'll say. I, I want better for you than that, <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. Um, <laughs> you will be memorialized by name on the film comment podcast. Yeah. Right. So. Exactly. Uh, but no, I, I, I do think... I understand the intellectual exercise. I get what she was attempting to do i don't know that it succeeds on that level yeah can i ask you guys a kind of broader question like Mm -hmm. what is a serial killer movie trying to do (laughs) you know like as you're talking about this when you're like i get what she's trying to do by changing the perspective but like what what is what is she trying to do like i wonder this all the time because i'm really i find them really icky and Mm -hmm. not even a not necessarily an ethical criticism. I just find them really difficult to watch, yeah. uh, read, whatever. Like, I just don't like reading about serial killers, watching movies about them. Maybe because almost every movie out there is kind of prurient and mm-hmm. voyeuristic. But, you know, people often say this, like, there wasn't enough of the point of view of the victims. But I'm like, what would that necessarily get us? And... What does that? And I'm I'm wondering, like, what what do you think this movie does differently? You know, is there something you experience with this, whether or not you ultimately found the movie convincing, mm. that is different from the traditional ser- serial killer thriller? Well, I think the difference is the fact that she's trying to do all these perspective and time jumps, mm. um, and she's trying to sort of create a portrait of this person, but using only the experiences of the people that he harmed. Um, so I, I think in that way that it, Alex, I mean, definitely push back if I'm wrong, but I think that's the sort of difference is not, we're not following um, Rodney's character from right. Jump, you know? Yeah, I think you're exactly right that that's the intent, but I think this, part of the reason it fails to my mind is because the visual grammar of it is, is exactly it? the same. Yeah. Mm. Like you do see the kills and the, brutal yeah and they're very brutal yeah yeah but i guess like does it does that change in perspective somehow change our understanding of this kind of violence did it expand your understanding of i don't know societal misogyny like that's what i wonder like would it to to view this kind of violence from the women's perspective Mm. does that change anything about these stories yeah, I mean, I think here the problem is that all the women become, inevitably become ciphers. And so we don't really understand anything about them. And so, you know, the short answer is no. But the longer, I think, gnarlier response is that it's it's trying to do too much at once. Yeah. Um, and so in trying to do all of that, it doesn't do, I think, any one thing super successfully. I really agree with you, Alex, on the, on the visual grammar. I felt like there was an attempt to try to... Um, have more intimate shots in the beginning and then that kind of 
fell away for Wait. a while and then it came back at the end in a strange sort of parallel between mm-hmm. when they catch him and 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 um, his and his first crime mm-hmm. and i don't know if that fully like was locked in for me mm-hmm. um i mean to your question about you know the fascination with serial killers i actually think the struggle is that Rodney, the character, still ends up being the person of interest. And right. so not having anything about him left me with a lot of questions. Right. Um, and then I think a broader just we just live in a culture that's obsessed with true crime and wants to know why someone would right. go on a killing spree yeah. is my short answer to that. I There was this Iranian film last year. I don't know if either of you saw it called Holy Spider by... Ali Abbasi. It premiered at Cannes and then, you know, did its way uh, through festivals and was at, did open in New York last year. And it was about this serial killer of of sex workers Mm -hmm. who claimed he was on this religious mission to purify his city, which is a holy city. Mm -hmm. And his trial was notable because a lot of people supported him and said he was actually doing God's work. It's very dark. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found that movie... Again, I mean, I thought it had all the same tropes of of the kind of serial killer movies I don't like, which is um, completely from his perspective, like mm-hmm. really kind of enamored with all the contra- like so-called contradictions, you know, that formed his personality, mm-hmm. his methods of killing. And the director had this, you know, in, uh, kind of had this fictional character of a journalist, sort of fictionalized character, not entirely fictional, right. of a journalist who has this ridiculous, like basically pretends to be a sex worker to bait him. And I found her to be such a contrived mm-hmm. kind of hero's narrative that that was cooked up for her. And then when I was reading about that case, he was caught because one of the sex workers that he trapped managed to fight back and run away. And despite all the dangers that faced her, went to the police, Whoa. right? And the police are not kind to sex workers, right? And that's a much more compelling story. About that woman, like you invented some fake feminist heroine. Like mm-hmm. you, we spent all this time with the killer, and that was one movie where I was like, I can think of a better story here. But often I'm like, I don't know what version of the story. I mean, I like, for example, David Fincher movies, mm-hmm. but I don't like them because they they say something about misogyny or women. I like them for very different, like more you know, sometimes primal or formal reasons. Mm -hmm. So then this whole idea of like, we're going to tell the story of a serial killer, but from the point of view of all his victims, I think that there needs to be more meat on that bone. I'm I'm talking about the concept, obviously. I haven't seen the movie, just going off of what you guys were saying. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing here that's interesting is, and this is another theme I've seen in the festival films that I've watched, um, is that specificity, right? Like part of the reason that that alternate story, the reality of the of that serial killer's case is so interesting is because it's anchored in sort of in these really specific instances, right? The fact that she's a sex worker who escapes mm-hmm. and then still goes to the police that have the inherent contradictions of real life. So it's not trying to contrive contradictions to make a point. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes the point yeah. because of what happened. Yeah. Uh, and I feel in a lot of the the films that I've seen, instead of beginning with the specific, there is this sort of broad gesture towards a greater message and then not filling in, you know, Mm -hmm. the story. And so the story gets kind of abandoned for something um, maybe a little bit more diffuse. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's hard. And And I can say that about a lot of films, but that's 
when you said that, I was thinking, oh, that's another theme of this festival yeah. for me is yeah, like, having, yeah. No, no, no please. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> We're so polite. I, I, was, I was just going to enthusiastically agree with you. So. <laughs> but the, the sort of grafting on of themes is definitely yeah. something. Oh. I mean, dream scenario, this is what we were just talking about. This notion of like, oh, we're going to make this about cancel culture. And it's like, actually, the story of the guy was weird enough and interesting enough and, right. and yeah. maybe where you should have kept it. Just that. Um, but um, actually, uh, Lovia, I know you saw Lee, yes. uh, this uh, film starring Kate Winslet as this kind of very radical for her time war yeah. photographer yeah uh just talking about movies about real people and real things and how they're visualized and you know i'm i'm very curious about that one yeah so lee is about um the uh war photographer lee miller who used to be a model um and then during world war ii was a photographer for vogue uh first in uh in for british vogue i should be specific um First, when she was living in London and she was just sort of photographing what it was like to be in the war, but not like in combat. Um, and then when she got accredited as a U.S. journalist um, and went to the German border and was really like um, kind of photographing the aftermath of, of D-Day. And Kate Winslet plays Lee um, Miller and... You know, staff casts like Andrea Riseborough plays her editor, um, Alexander Skarsgård plays Rowan, who's uh, her lover, uh, Josh O'Connor um, plays a journalist who the film is sort of framed as a conversation between Lee and a, and a younger journalist who's curious about um, her life. And that's who Josh Connor plays. I'm forgetting some people, but you know, mm -hmm. uh, I thought that. I found um, Kate Winslet's performance to be um, incredibly moving for its subtlety. Again, I keep coming back to this idea of um, portraying a person as traumatized, but in more in the ways, the subtle ways that their personalities change as a result of whatever experience they've been through. Um, so I found her performance incredibly convincing in that regard. So the, but I think that the actual film. Once I learned a little bit more, I'm going to go back. Once I learned a little bit more about Lee, the person, I found the film to be a very polished exercise. Mm. Um, and I don't know if that is like a fair criticism of something that I felt like, you know, it feels very like ready for the award season <laughs> type of film. Um, and it kind and I think that kind of rubs up against like the contradictions of Lee as a person. Like she had many selves and she had, um, a difficult life in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that the film, you know, it can only really, it tries to capture this one period in her life after she stops being a model and starts taking photographs full time. Um, but the structure of it, I think foregrounds, I'm sorry, talks a lot of the revelations at the end that I thought could have been useful for the beginning and kind of understanding this woman as a photographer. Like, why does she seek to see instead of be seen? Like, what made her want to move from being the object of desire to the person who's deciding what's in the frame? Because she used to be a model, right? Yeah, That's, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so I thought a lot of those questions were kind of, uh, made secondary by just the fact that, you know, it's like, this is a woman photographer, war woman for war photographer, um, who feminism, <laughs> somehow that is, <laughs> <Feminism>. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the, 
And it is an incredibly powerful... Like it becomes powerful a fetish, right? It becomes this thing of fe- yeah. the female mm-hmm. blank. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think a yeah. lot, and there were a lot of lines in the film that were like, it's so important that Lee is doing this and like, I really want people to see what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a there's a there's a greater restlessness in this in this character, and I was just I wanted the film to be a little bit more um, curious about that, and I think mm. maybe that could have my hypothesis is that could have been handled through the structure, but you know, mm. yeah. Um, Alex, um, you know, we're almost like we're winding down to kind of the last stretch of the pod, so maybe we all want to just shout out some films we we've seen that we like or are notable in some ways. There's just the thing about Tiff is like there's just so many films here mm-hmm. and I when we finish the podcast I'm always like god it's like you know running a sieve through this line. <laughs> um, but I know there's there's a few that you liked that stood out to you. Did you want to just highlight some viewings yeah i can do rapid fire i mean i i loved the miyazaki i know that that's already been discussed as it should have been um that feels like a really beautiful just reflection on his legacy and it's you know it's it's giving spirited away in the best sense (laughs) uh and pulling in things from you know earlier in his body of work in a way that i i found very moving can i ask Um, you a question about it yeah how did you feel about the the sense that the plot was being like made up every minute. <laughs> I like that, but I mean, I think one of his great strengths is how seriously he takes the sort of interior lives of children, mm. and that just felt like the way kids play. And I think you know some of the best of his work has been in that kind of fantasy space. And like again, thinking about Spirited Away, I feel like when she arrives in that sort of alternate universe mm-hmm. there is this, just this sense of there are all these rules that you don't know but everyone around you knows them and you're just gonna be swept along in this thing <laughs> and uh i think this has that quality as well mm-hmm. and i didn't mind the randomness of it i i found it sort of fun and and was carried along yeah by it. we but had can, a we had no we had like an interesting discussion about that when we talked about it mm-hmm. and we were just like i think this is how children think like yeah. they don't have a sense of like oppressive sense of temporality like mm, we right. do you know when like every moment of the phrase. past like yeah. weighs on us like you know we but as we grow older we're like obsessed with the past and children are just like every you know there's more life ahead of them than behind and that's a wonderful thing yeah, shout out to exactly. the kids <laughs> I, I liked the dream logic of it um and i also found it very sort of emotionally yeah. moving uh um and then the hamaguchi also i thought was fantastic um what else have I seen? The holdovers oh, is yeah, fun. Yeah. Do, yeah. Say, do say some words about the holdovers because, you know, Alexander Payne, like, mm-hmm. I didn't see it yet, but his last movie was Downsizing, or did he yes. make something between that and now? That was the last one, I believe, and yeah. And it was very divisive. Yeah. I was sold. Like, Downsizing was very interesting and mm-hmm. prickly and, like, a very smart movie, I thought, on climate catastrophe and mm-hmm. its link to like class inequities and global inequities uh but yeah any what were your thoughts on this one yeah i really enjoyed i mean i think paul giamatti's performance is fantastic there are a lot of great performances in yeah. this film do you um, want to say just a line about what it what the premise of the film is oh sure essentially um so you, you it's again academia uh, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> You are following a... There's a a crisis in academia, (laughs) y'all. Yes, and the filmmakers are on it. (laughs) They're going to get to the bottom of this. (laughs) Um, He's he's playing a sort of curmudgeonly teacher of a class on ancient civilizations at this boarding school. And he is not well-liked 
by the staff or the students, uh, but he is tasked with being the professor who stays behind mm-hmm. during the sort of holiday break with the students who, for whatever reason, cannot go home to their families. So it's about that sort of weird limbo period and the uh, motley crew who remain at the school and how they, you know, overcome their differences and learn things about... We always love a motley about... crew at a school. Oh, you know? yes. That's just like <laughs> fodder for some fun... Movie hijinks. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, hijinks do ensue. Um, <laughs> no, and, and, and I think the beats of this film, to your point, are very familiar. You can kind of guess where it's going. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the student he's clashing with will, of course, come to a deeper understanding of him and vice versa. Um, but I found it sneakily affecting. You know, I actually did uh, feel that the places that it went were um, very uh, moving to me by mm. the end. So, cool. you know, mm-hmm. worth, worth seeing. Yeah, I'll quickly shout out, uh, or maybe actually, Olivia, you go, you go first. I know that you had some thoughts about Silver Dollar Road, which is the new movie by Raoul Peck uh, yeah, that you I showed mean, at the festival. Yeah, I liked it. I think it was it started slow. It's very conventionally formatted, which I think for fans of Peck will be um, maybe both a surprise and a bore. But by the end of it, I was incredibly moved. And, and it sort of ties similarly to another film that I enjoyed, which was um, We Grown Now, another film that starts off very slowly, but I think really finds its footing by the end. And again, this just ties back to my whole quest of narrative specificity, which I will champion until the end of time. <laughs> well, do you just want to say a little bit about both films? Yeah, Just like sure. what they're about? And, so Silver yeah. Dollar Road is a documentary that's based on a ProPublica and New Yorker partnership. <laughs> Conflict of interest. Alex, um, you must leave the room right now. Yeah, I, I was heavily involved. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's based on this investigation um, into a black family in North Carolina who are in the middle of a decades-long uh, legal battle with a developer who's trying to buy their land called Silver Dollar Road. Mm. Um, and it's really about the film is both about this family and it goes specifically into the reals the reels of family's struggles and and what this land means to, means to them but it also is trying to do a lot of like contextual work and i wonder how much of that is because it's going to be i think on amazon and so it really is geared towards um, it's an it's an educational text mm. in a lot of ways um and so there's a lot of setup in the beginning which mm. we talked about offline but by the end you know that kind of more educational mode falls away to something more observational and quiet and intimate. Um, And I found that the latter half of the film to be a really moving portrait of home as not, of land, right, for Black people in America as not just this place to live, but where communities and homes are made. And, Mm. And for me, it felt like a really good companion piece to... Um, Sarah Broom's The Yellow House, which is, I think, a really phenomenal uh, memoir. Um, and this documentary after Sherman that came out, I think, yeah. last year, which is also about this relationship to land and community building. Um, and so in, I was thinking about it in that way, and I yeah. felt very affected by it. Um, there was also We Grown Now, which is about two boys growing up in the Caprini Greens um, mm. housing projects in Chicago. Um, and it's just this coming of age portrait um, of, you know, I think that my favorite bit of the film is that they love to f- pretend to fly by stacking these mattresses, running and trying to like jump as high as they can and land on them. Um, and I think it's gorgeous, you know, but I, the, the beginning, it, it's a little vague. It's a little 
unmoored until until the third act where um one of the boys, Malik, has to tell his friend Eric that he's going to move out um, um, of the projects because his mom got a new job. Um, and it becomes then, it lasers in on this friendship between these two boys and what it means to be seven and confront this kind of profound change of what happens to friendship when my best friend is moving away. Mm. Um, and not just moving away, moving up. Moving up, exactly. Yeah. And so there's a lot of things happening there and, and the the leads are, are phenomenal actors. Right. And so... Um, I found myself very moved by the end and I think that's because it got really specific, right? Mm. And it became really about these two kids and this really this one problem instead of a more um, generalized portrait of, of the Caprini Greens. Mm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that sounds quite lovely. Um, I'll close out with actually two Brazilian films. I just Ooh. realized they make a nice pair uh, that I caught here. So one of them uh, was a little bit under the radar for me. I just kind of walked into it uh, frankly it's called toll it's by this filmmaker carolina markovich mm -hmm. um she had a film called charcoal i believe just a year or two ago that you know gained quite a bit of acclaim uh but toll is about this mother a single mother and her 17 year old son in brazil um i think near sao paulo though i can't exactly place the location right now and uh, the mother is played by this wonderful Brazilian actress, Maeve Jenkins, um, who, if listeners have seen Clever Mendonça Filho's Neighboring Sounds, she's in that. She's in a lot of very good Brazilian cinema. And th the premise of the film that she works as a toll booth attendant. She's very much just trying to like scrape by. She has a boyfriend that she's just gotten kind of serious with. Mm -hmm. And her son is gay, very openly, proudly queer. And she hates that he's gay. And so she is trying to scrounge up money to send him to a gay conversion camp at a nearby church. And in order to raise that money, she joins like a criminal gang. Like, a, a, like Jesus. Yeah, she she basically, I mean, she doesn't join a gang. Like, she, she becomes part of this operation that her boyfriend is involved in, like, of thieving, like, robbing people on the road. Mm -hmm. And she kind of becomes involved in that. And what I've liked about the film is that it's actually really funny you know this sounds it's not what i thought you were gonna say no but that's not i didn't think that's how the the premise i was like sounds kind of dark mm -hmm. it's really funny um it has a very light touch and this it, it's unusual how the mother-daughter really uh, sorry mother-son relationship is depicted because she's very clearly homophobic mm -hmm. she is really making his life very hard. But they also have a very tough and close bond. Um, you know, they've been together, like just the two of them. She's a young mother. So you you sense that they, they're very close. So she comes home and she's, and he's always recording these videos of him doing drag and all of that. And she's always telling like, don't do all this. Like, you know, you're a man. And he's just like, fuck off and slams the door in her face, you know? So they have this like really prickly relationship that I found Something I hadn't seen on screen that much mm -hmm. and maybe something that would speak to many people's lives, which is that sometimes your parents don't need to be, your parents can be very tender and loving and can be close to you, but still be really homophobic and not understand who you are. And it's like way more complex, you know, like this kind of love and bigotry works in like much more complex ways than just get out of the house or, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it really is like in that space. And 
And yeah, the, the conversion, the scenes of the conversion camp are just hilarious. I mean, it's run by this weird past, like European pastor, and he makes it, he gives him these like genitals made of clay. So the lesbians get like uh, vaginas and the gay boys get um, dicks. And then they have to like remold that into like, you know, the the opposite, so-called opposite sex. Yeah, it's like full of this. It's really ridiculous. Wow. It's like, it's just so funny. Many even questions. Though it's, yeah, I mean, even though it's about something pretty dark and sad, mm-hmm. like gay conversion therapy run by churches is like a very, uh, a horrible system. But the film manages to be very beautiful and empathetic while having a truly sardonic and biting sense of humor. So I enjoyed that. The other film I'll shout out is Pictures of Ghosts, which is by Kleber Mendonsofilio. And which does feature scenes from neighboring sounds, which have Maeve Jenkins in them. So it was just like such so fun to see the films like just two days apart. Yeah. And if you're a fan of Kleber's, I mean, if you've seen like Bakura, which came out a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and then Aquarius, I mean, I just love his work. I think he's he's <sighs> such a smart filmmaker. This is a very small personal film from him. I mean, mm-hmm. he usually does these big social dramas with genre elements. This is just a, a film essay memoir about... It's in three parts, um, and it's about space, the spaces of the town. He grew up in Recife, and its place in his filmmaking and Brazilian film culture in general. So the first section is about the house he grew up in and how it has featured in all his films. And I don't even know how to describe it. It's very associative and takes this beautiful, goes through his home video and scenes from his films and zeros in on these elements of the architecture and his memories and the neighbors and this one photo he unearths early photo in which there's like a seeming ghost in a picture and it's really beautiful meditation on how yeah how much space shapes filmmaking and how much space is invested with feeling and emotion and memory Mm -hmm. and then the second part of the film is about the cinemas of Recife the cinemas he grew up with many of them that don't exist anymore again combining archival and home video footage and amazing an amazing kind of detour into how one of his favorite cinemas was actually supposed to be a nazi ufa cinema but then it was like abandoned so it has this connection to hitler and then there was this building in recife where all these american film studios had offices and there was a whole black market of people who went through the garbage and then sold like uh, you know, souvenirs kind of foraged from the trash uh, mm-hmm. to young film nerds like him. And he has a whole and stash. And then the third section is about how many of those cinemas have become churches without, wow. yeah, without much change to their decor or architecture because it's so easy to transpose like the seating some of them still have screens cinema as church yeah and they've become evangelical churches specifically so it's you know it's just this amazing weaving together of personal history collective history film history urban history that and it ends with I, i won't spoil it it ends with like a beautiful little magic a very cinematic magic trick kind of, that really brings all of these themes together in a moment of whimsy that's kind of, well, what cinema is all about, you know? So I felt very charmed by this film yesterday, so I will shout it out. That was a gorgeous description. I'm yeah. going to see this okay. now. I'll be looking for all of these <laughs> <Yeah>. things now. <laughs> 
Well, oh, I think with that sort of love letter to cinema is like <laughs> such a good place to end. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Alex and Lovia, for coming on the pod and sharing your insights. This was wonderful. I wish you both a good rest of your TIFF and, you know, hope to have you back on soon. Thank you for inviting me back, Tabitha. Yeah, this is a great time. Always yeah. happy to chat. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 